The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. All right, I'm not going to lie. I thought I had a great opening for this sermon this morning. I, all week, I've been thinking about, man, I can go in. We're, we're going to talk on the exile and division this morning. I was going to come in. And I was going to say, we've maybe been div- divided, a divided house over the last few weeks. But now that Thanksgiving has come, we can have unity because we all can celebrate Christmas now. We can all put our lights up. We can all watch Christmas movies. It's Christmas time has come. And yet then... I, Clearly, I don't pay attention to uh, South Carolina sports. And then, I, you know, lo and behold, Friday, I remember that the Clemson-Carolina game is yesterday. So maybe there's some division among us. But I'm hoping that we can be united knowing that the Lord Jesus is coming, that we get to celebrate Advent starting next week, that Jesus has come. So while we think about division in the Old Testament this morning, we think about Israel being divided, we think about Israel being exiled, I'm excited that we get to be unified in worshiping the Lord Jesus in this season. We've been in a sermon series that we've called The True Story of the Whole World, where we've essentially been trying to look at uh, what theologians will call the meta-narrative of the scripture. What is this grand story? The Bible is not just a list of morals, a list of good stories that you learn in vacation Bible school growing up. It is the true story of the whole world that God has been writing for all of eternity. So over the last seven weeks, we've walked through kind of what we've called seven different chapters. We've looked at creation, fall, promise, exodus, law, kings, and the temple. Zach left us last week near the beginning of 1 Kings with the formation of the temple by Solomon. He challenged us that the temple shows us that we have access to God and also that we have a mission on behalf of God. And so my goal this morning, we, got let, we were left in 1 Kings 8, 1 Kings 9, is to essentially overview the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of my Old Testament is 793 pages. So that is a lot to cover in this next 30 minutes or so, but we're going to try to do our best to get at what is God saying through the rest of the scripture, leaving us on the cliffhanger, waiting for the Messiah to come. I think we're going to see in this, over this next 30 minutes, we're going to see that the all-powerful good God of the Bible controls all things. Men fail, nations fall, evil happens, but God is ever faithful to his people. He providentially leads and guides his people, even through the hardest of times. So we've entitled this chapter 8, uh, Exile, as we see on the screen. We're going to primarily be in 1 Kings and 2 Kings to start us this morning. But what I want to do is give us a little bit of historical context to give us kind of a run-up to where we are in 1 Kings. I like to try to make things as simple as possible, especially when we're thinking about the Old Testament. There's lots of dates, lots of time, lots of people, lots of nations. So trying to give you guys just a framework to think about kind of where we have been and where we are going. So on the screen, we'll see just some kind of brief dates that are helpful for me to just kind of, these are round numbers, so it's not exactly precise, but helpful to kind of think about. Around 2000 BC is when we have Abraham. That's, Abraham is in Genesis. He's the one we talked about with the promise starting in Genesis 
12, so that's 2000 BC, about 4,000 years ago. 1500 BC is around when Moses exists. So Moses, Exodus, um, and Numbers kind of tells the story of Moses. And he writes ultimately the Pentateuch, those first five books in the Bible. And then around 1000 BC, we have David, King David, the great king of Israel. So this is a large time frame. A lot has happened. It's interesting to think about how large these gaps are. 500 years, a thousand years. If I was to ask you guys, you know, what do you feel? What do you think about when I say the year 1023? It's like, I, I don't have any connection with the year 1023. I know people existed. I know there were Christians. I know there were churches. I know I had some ancestors living because I'm here right now. That's about all of my connection to the year 1023. I don't really have anything that's tying me to that year. And yet, it's interesting to think about it in the Old Testament, there's just such clear ties. Even over 500 years, even over 1,000 years, there's such tying up of the people We're trying to show in this series how the Bible is one true story. It's written over about 1,500 years. The events are hearkening back to the creation of time. We think about when we see the Old Testament, the key historical books in the Old Testament. So we start off in Genesis. It's where we had creation. We then have Exodus, Numbers. Those are kind of the three historical books from the first five books. We then have Joshua and Judges. And then we have 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. We'll see on the screen, we should have kind of a summary of each of those books. So 1st Samuel talks about the kingship, the Israel desired to have a king like other countries. And so they call and ask God to put a king in place. 2nd Samuel, we have King David put in place. And then really for our purposes this morning, we're going to start off in 1st Kings We have the temple where uh, Zach left us last week, and we have Israel divided. And then in 2 Kings, we're going to have the exile. That's what we're really kind of emphasizing this morning. The division has come in 1 Kings, and then the exile of Israel comes in 2 Kings. And then there's this time frame of exile where the prophets come about. We'll talk more about that. And then the last two kind of historical books of the Old Testament are Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra talks about the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah talks about really the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which comes with the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. All right, the first area we're going to explore is 1 Kings. 1 Kings highlights the split of the northern and southern kingdom when Israel divides. Solomon became the king of Israel after his father, David. First Kings 5 through 8, Solomon builds the temple. This gives the people a taste of the Garden of Eden that Zach referred to last week. This garden where God dwells, this temple where God dwells with his people. The relationship with God and his people flourishes here. Then 1 Kings 9 through 11, Solomon falls apart. Solomon starts to turn from the Lord. God asks Solomon to walk faithfully with him. But instead, Solomon marries daughters of other kings for political alliances. He adopts their gods. He uses forced labor to accumulate his wealth. He essentially breaks the guidelines of Deuteronomy 17 that shows how kings should lead and serve where God lays that out for the people of Israel. 
And that leads us up to 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to start reading verses 9 through 13 in 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11 verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. This is mind-blowing. This is the guy who writes Proverbs, who is so wise, really maybe one of the wisest men to ever live, and yet he turns away from the Lord. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So God is angry with Solomon. Solomon falls apart because he's turned away from the Lord. Solomon has gone after other gods. He's not done as the Lord commanded him. Verse 11, God promises that the Lord's going to be torn away from Solomon and his descendants. And it's going to be given to his servant. His servant is Jeroboam. Kind of an important name to remember. We'll talk about him more in just a second. Verse 12, God will not do the tearing away from Solomon. Ultimately because of Solomon's father, King David. God is going to rip the kingdom away from Solomon's son. And then verse 13, God is only going to give one tribe to Solomon's son. One thing to just note as we're reading this, these verses and the verses ahead, is just notice who is in control here. Who's dictating the story? Who's leading the story? Who's making these things happen? Let's go on to read just a little bit lower in 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 29. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, Jeroboam would be is the, the servant of Solomon. When Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shalonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. 12 pieces should trigger us. 12 tribes of Israel. He's tearing the garment. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe kind of in addition to his own. For the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sinaians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did." Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life. 
For the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. It's so interesting to read. It's kind of almost saying the same thing over and over and over again. I'm going to tear the kingdom from you, Solomon, yet for the sake of David, I'm not going to tear it from you. I'm going to tear it from your son. Verse 35, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you ten tribes. Yet to his son, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments as David, my servant, did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. It's interesting to note, too, again, that these, this repetition, if you're reading the Old Testament in the original language, there's no uh, exclamation points. There's not really like... You, you can really emphasize something with the way we might uh, emphasize an idea in writing. So it's saying kind of the same thing over and over and over. Ahijah prophesies to Jeroboam, Jeroboam, the servant of Solomon. In verse 31, Jeroboam gets 10 pieces of the garment, a.k.a. 10 tribes of Israel. God is tearing away the kingdom from Solomon because he and his people have worshipped other gods, they have not walked in the ways of the Lord. They have not done what is right. Verse 35, the kingdom will be taken from Solomon's son. So Solomon's servant is Jeroboam. Solomon's son is Rehoboam. So his son starts with an R, servant starts with a J. That's probably just the easiest way to remember it. One tribe is going to be given to Rehoboam for the sake of of David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city God has chosen. And then we get verse 38. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house. It's interesting to think about verse 38 is almost a way that we perceive Christianity to work. God will be with Jeroboam if Jeroboam is faithful to God. It's important to point out how we read the Bible, how easy it is to take a verse like this, to think about it. It sounds really, really great. It sounds, it's an important verse to think on and stew on, but it's an important verse to think about that in its context, this verse is not one to pull out and think about. If I do this, this is how God is going to love me. When I was growing up, I, I often thought about Christianity. The way to be a Christian is to do good works. As long as you do a lot of good things, as long as you kind of heed the prophecy right here to Jeroboam, if you'll listen to all that I've commanded you, if you walk in my ways, do what is right in my eyes, then I will be with you. But it's very interesting to think about that is not what the New Testament is going to emphasize. The New Testament's going to emphasize ultimately you fall short. You cannot hold up to this standard. The gospel is that we fall short and yet Jesus has paid it all. Jesus is the only perfect one. Jesus is the one who has conquered death, the one who pays for our sins, the only one who is truly 
righteous. So it's important when we're reading the Old Testament, we're going to do this again here in a few minutes, to read it in its context. And we want to pursue faithfulness. We want to pursue God. We want to walk closely with the Lord. We want to do all of those things. We want to ask God to help us do that. But ultimately recognizing we fall short. But Christ is faithful. God is faithful. Verse 39, God is going to afflict David's descendants, but he's not going to do it forever. And then chapter 11, verse 43, Solomon dies. So Solomon's reign is done. First Kings 12, it opens up with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, acting like his father. In the first 15 verses of First Kings 12, Rehoboam increases the workload upon Jeroboam and the people of Israel. Essentially, he works them like slaves, and then he taxes them even heavier. He refuses to listen to the people. The people came and said, man, Solomon made it difficult for us. Could you lighten our load? We still want to be faithful. We want to serve you. We want to be uh, good servants. And yet Rehoboam chooses to make their workload harder. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 16. So this hard taxing, this difficult work that Rehoboam gives Israel is going to ultimately lead to the kingdom being divided. 1 Kings 12, verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king, Rehoboam, did not listen to them when they begged him to make things easier, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. All right, you're gonna have to work with me here over just the next couple of minutes to kind of piece out where all these people fall, where these uh, names fall, who these uh, different people groups are. So verse 16, people, the people saw Rehoboam was not going to listen. So Israel rebels and makes Jeroboam king over them. There's an important distinction here. We've been calling kind of the people of the Old Testament Israel. That's, that's the name that we refer to them, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob in, earlier in Genesis had his name changed to Israel. But an important con distinction comes here is that Israel splits into two kingdoms. But one of the new kingdoms is still called Israel. So Israel, this will be up on the screen. Israel before 931 BC, aka kind of 1 Kings 12, right where we are, there were 12 tribes of Israel. In 931 BC, Israel divided, which is happening right here before us in 1 Kings 12. And then there's going to be another slide on the screen. There's probably going to be, kind of like Zach said last week, there's kind of too many notes. If you're trying to write everything down, you're probably not going to be able to. I'm happy to give you any of these, any of this information afterwards. Please find me. The next slide will show, highlight that the northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. 
So the northern kingdom of Israel is going to have 10 tribes, 10 of the 12. It's going to have King Jeroboam, who is Solomon's servant. The capital is Samaria. Samaria rings a bell. That's going to be important as we get into the New Testament starting next week. And Israel has 20 bad kings. None of their kings are good. You can read about it in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. None of their kings are good. They all fall short. They all lead the people astray. None of them are good. Then the southern kingdom is Judah. And there are two tribes. So two of the 12 tribes are in Judah. The king is Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son. The capital is Jerusalem. We've been hearing that name kind of again and again over these last few verses. And in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, it highlights that Judah has eight good kings and 12 bad kings. The end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings were introduced to the prophets Elijah and Elisha. You've probably heard their names. We'll return to think more about the prophets here in a few minutes. We're going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. But before we do, just kind of showing the next couple of things that I'm going to highlight On the screen, there should be a couple more years. 931, Israel splits. This is BC, so about a thousand years before Jesus. In 721, we're going to have the fall of the northern kingdom, which is Israel, which is going to happen in 2 Kings 17. That's where we're going to turn right now. And then in 586, we're going to have the fall of the southern kingdom, 2 Kings 24 and 25. The fall of the northern kingdom starts the Assyrian exile. The fall of the southern kingdom starts the Babylonian exile. So the exile is kind of going to where where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. 2 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 5. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land. So we're speaking here about Israel, the northern kingdom. The king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, the capital of Israel. And for three years, he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, placed them in these different places. So the empire of Assyria has come and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. He's taken them captive and he's taken them back to his homeland to Assyria. Essentially, Israelites have been conquered and they are now scattered. When we think about this, as we think about the exile over these next few minutes, just think about what it would be like to be conquered wherever you live right now, to be conquered by a people group, and then to be taken far away from home. You think that God is faithful to you. God has made all these promises. God has promised to be with you, to care for you. And yet you have faced division, you face hardship, and now you face exile. You're being taken away by these people who want to essentially destroy you and enslave you. Second Kings chapter 17, let's continue reading verse 7. This is going to explain why the Israelites, the northern kingdom, were um, exiled. Verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, 
who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. So this should ring a bell back to Exodus. God had been faithful to bring them out of the land. And yet then the people of Israel start doing what other nations are doing. They're unfaithful. They do not walk faithfully with the Lord. Verse 9. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. It's just mind-blowing. They secretly are doing things. They think maybe the Lord won't see. They're doing things that are not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. So the Israel is being unfaithful. God sends these prophets to try to reclaim them, to tell them how bad they're doing, how unfaithful they're being, and to try to draw them back to himself. Verse 14, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. It's interesting reading this passage, thinking about our own hearts here. Stubbornness. Not listening, not listening to the Lord our God. Verse 15, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. We think about the Lord having a righteous anger against his people. His people are doing wrong. His people are going astray. His people are not being faithful. And God is angry. Verse 19, Judah also did not keep the commandments. So we had the northern kingdom of Israel, not faithful. The southern kingdom of Judah, not faithful. They did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. It's interesting and mind-blowing to think about how unfaithful God's people are to the faithful God, to a God who is always faithful, ever-present, always caring for his people. 
but it's easy to see in the moment that maybe God is not faithful, to ask questions of him, to ask why he's not there. Yeah, the people go astray, and ultimately in those last three verses, Israel is put in exile in Assyria. So the northern kingdom, 721, they are exiled because of their covenantal unfaithfulness to the Lord God. Flipping over 2 Kings 24, I'm just going to read a few verses there to see the southern kingdom now being exiled. The northern kingdom, they're exiled to Assyria. The southern kingdom, they're going to be exiled to Babylon. 2 Kings 24, verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, to Judah, to the southern kingdom, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. So this is currently the, the king of Judah. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. Listen to all this that uh, the Babylonians carry away. Verse 14, he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, if you've read through the book of Daniel, these names will, will ring a bell. The, they conquered the Assyrians, the ones who took the northern kingdom. And then they came and they conquered Jerusalem. They conquered the southern kingdom and they carried away all of the inhabitants except the poorest of the poor. Chapter 25 provides a few more details. Essentially, the people are completely exiled. The people are taken away from their homeland. It's like me coming and dragging you out of Greer and taking you to the middle of nowhere in Mexico, South America, taking you to a whole different continent, a place that you've never known, never seen. All of these events that have taken place are the reasons that the prophets came. So later in the Old Testament, there's, there are prophets, uh, there's five major prophets, 12 minor prophets, all of the prophets are very important. That just has to do with kind of length of how long uh, their, their books are. The prophets came to speak on God's behalf, to call out the sin of Israel, to challenge Israel and Judah to repent. It really starts with Samuel back in 1 Samuel. He's really the first prophet. And then it takes off all in this time, all around what we're reading right now. Some of the prophets are for the northern kingdom. Some of the prophets are for the southern kingdom. Some of the prophets are for when Israel and Judah are in exile. Some of the prophets are for when they come out of exile. Some of the prophets are for foreign nations. We think about Jonah. We think about Nineveh. Everything seems terrible at this moment. And I think it really is probably pretty terrible. The prophets emerge, and while they do prophesy strongly, they offer a very strong hope to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah. And that's what I, where I want us to kind of conclude and land today is this hope that comes in Jeremiah 29. So if you'll flip, it's a good bit of flipping into the section on the prophets after Psalms, after Isaiah. 
Jeremiah 29. I'm going to read verse 1 and then read verse 4 through 14. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he's writing this to those who have been taken away from home into exile. He's going to make these promises. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Essentially, keep yourselves going. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah, at this point, it's a letter from Jeremiah the prophet in Jerusalem to all the leaders and all the people in exile that Nebuchadnezzar has taken away. Verse 5, he, he tells them to essentially establish themselves, continue to live, continue to function. Verse 7, he even says, seek the good of the people who have taken you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Verse 8 and 9, do not be deceived by false prophets. People are going to come and say certain things. Don't be deceived by them. Verse 10, when the Babylonians have led the Israelites, have had the Israelites exiled for 70 years, God promises that he's going to visit them and he's going to return them to their homeland. This happens around kind of 536, 535 BC. He's going to bring them back home. Verse 11, you've probably seen quoted somewhere. You've had it on a, on a you know, pillow at your house. You've you know, put it around your, around your house. Jeremiah 29, 11. It's important to read it in its context of these people are exiled. They are taken away from their home. Their life is essentially terrible. But then God says to them, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God promises to be faithful to his people, to his exiled people, to his people that are away from home. Verses 12 through 14, he encourages them to call upon him, to seek him, to pray to him, and he will care for them. He will bring them back from exile. So all this to lay out over these 
many verses that we've read. The kingdom has been divided. Israel has been divided. Israel and Judah have been taken into exile. And it seems like everything's done. What hope do we have? Jeremiah 29 leaves them with a hope. Trevor highlighted with the fall in Genesis 3 how uh, the fall is kind of a type of exile. That Adam and Eve are taken out of the garden. They're taken away from home. And when I think about us, it's in many ways the same. We've been exiled from the true relationship that we are to have. We're cast away from God's presence due to covenantal unfaithfulness. But there's hope in Genesis 3. There's hope in Jeremiah 29. Something is going to happen. Redemption is coming. A person is coming. A Messiah is coming. Zach read for us last week, 1 Peter chapter 2. These are going to be the last two verses that we read. 1 Peter chapter 2. He read to us verse 4 through 10. I want to read to us verses 11 and 12. Peter is writing to people in exile. He's encouraging these Christians who are away from their home. Ones who have been scattered. In many ways, I want us to think about us. We are, in many ways, looking for home. We're always looking for comfort. We're looking for wholeness and fullness and completeness. But in this world, we're never going to find it. We are made for a different home. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter encourages these men and women who have been exiled, who are away from their home, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. They are to do good. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 verse 14 encourages us that we have no lasting city. That we are exiles and sojourners. We as followers of Jesus, we have not found our home. We are seeking a city to come. So while Peter is writing to actual exiles, in many ways we are actual exiles. We are waiting for the city to come. The true Jerusalem. Zion. So after reading all of this, kind of the question is, what do I need to do? What I've tried to, to, to do over these last 30 minutes or so is just give us an on-ramp to think about how does the Old Testament piece together? How does the Old Testament shape, kind of pointing to Christ? Next week, we're going to start into the New Testament. We're going to think about the Messiah. But whenever I think about an application, I ask kind of two questions. What do I need to know and what do I need to do? I want to highlight three things for what do I need to know. What do I need to know from all of these passages in thinking about the exile? First, sin is rampant. God exiles his people because his people are not faithful. 
Because they are covenantally unfaithful. They're always pursuing other gods. They're doing things that he commanded them to not do. They're not doing things that he commanded them to do. Sin is rampant. And the same is true for us. The same is true for you. The same is true for me. My heart still loves sin, even though Christ has made it right. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. My, my sin is still ever present. So it's important to know that sin is rampant. Number two, God is faithful and in control. I asked you the question a few minutes ago, kind of who is the primary actor leading and guiding all of this? Israel is not faithful to God, and yet God is the one that is leading them, guiding them, drawing them back to himself. God is the one who is faithful and in control. And number three, Essentially, there is a hope. The Messiah is coming. Next week, chapter 9 is going to be the Messiah. It's going to be the one who has come. Genesis 3.15, we've been waiting. We've been longing for someone to make all things right. To make all sad things come untrue. And then what do I need to do? What do I need to know? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? First, be in the world, but set apart from the world. In many ways, we are in exile. This is not our home. As great as your life may be, this is not your home. As terrible as your life may be, this is not your home. We are longing and waiting for Christ to return. For Christ to come and make all things right. And Christ has already initiated that. The Messiah has come. We can be in the world, but we are to be set apart from the world. We are not to pursue what the world has to offer us. And number two, trust in the Messiah. Jesus has come. He has inaugurated his kingdom. It is already present and yet it is not yet fully here. Jesus says that those will be saved who call on him and have faith in him. That's what Paul writes in, in Romans 10. We can put our trust, we can put our hope in the Lord Jesus. The one who takes us out of exile and brings us into true into the true homeland, into true relationship with God who we were created for. Now this morning, we're gonna have the great joy of getting to celebrate communion. Communion is a picture of Christ's death. And then ultimately, we get to remember Christ's resurrection. We get to remember that Christ has given it all for you and for me. We put our faith in Christ, the one who was crucified, the one whose body was broken, the one whose blood was shed for you and for me. And this changes everything. It gives us a hope. We can think about Jeremiah 29, 11, in light of what Christ has done for us. In just a minute, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read through our liturgy. And then when I invite you forward, you'll come down on the outsides of uh, the, the, the room. You'll take of the elements and then come back up through the middle. 
I pray this will be an encouragement to think about that Christ has given his life for you and for me. The one who left, according to Philippians 2, left heaven, left his perfect relationship with the Father, lived a perfect life, took on the wrath of God for you and me, and then was buried, raised, and ascended to the Father. This is the one we can put our hope and our trust in. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the Old Testament that tells a story of your people, that shows people that are like us, who are unfaithful, who are sinful, who struggle, who ask questions, who go through hardships, who go through trials, who feel like we're in exile. Lord, we can read this and we can see and know that you are faithful to your people, that you care for your people, that you are in control. So while sin is rampant, we are grateful that the Messiah has come. Lord, help us to put our trust in you. Help us to be in the world, but set apart from the world. Lord, help us to live faithfully for you. We love you. Amen.